This is 80s Revisited. I'm your producer, Jesse Sedgley. And now, your host, Trey Harris. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting. And soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. And little did they know, they had one of the biggest actors of all time in a bit part, in a cameo, in their trailer. Willem Dafoe. You might have heard his voice in the trailer there. Welcome back, everybody, to your latest blast from the past. It's me, your host, host with the most, Trey Harris. We're going to talk this month, or this episode, I should say, about the 1983 classic, question mark, slash cult film, slash... LGBTQ plus iconic movie, goth iconic movie, all sorts of things rolled into one called The Hunger, a.k.a. how it was introduced to me when I was younger as that lesbian vampire movie. Uh, with me, as always, uh, my companion through the thousands or hundreds of years of my existence, Jesse Sedgley. Yes, I am. So, yeah, let's get right to it because... Uh, most of y'all might have seen this movie. If not, I highly recommend it. Uh, we'll get into more of that when we, after we get to the who, what, when, where. Uh, but it released theatrically April 29th, 1983. IMDb gives it a 6.6. Too bad they don't do two decimals because then it could be 6.66. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Rock and roll. <laughs> anyway, Rotten Tomatoes, 55% audience, 66% thus ending our streak of single-digit differences between Rotten Tomatoes critics and audience. But obviously the audience, 66%, IMDb, 6.6, much in line there. Critics were half and half on it. Budget was an estimated $10 million, open at 1.8, again on April 29, 1983, which was good enough to be number five on its opening weekend. Number one, Flashdance. Uh, we'll go on domestically to gross 5.9 million worldwide, according to Wikipedia, because that's the only place that had any information about that. But Wikipedia states 10.2 million, so it, by the smidge, the smallest margin almost possible, made its money back. Uh, couldn't find any information on rentals. Uh, it was directed by the late great, I would say, Tony Scott, brother of Sir Ridley Scott. Uh, Tony Scott, uh, better known for directing Top Gun. Sequels in theaters right now. Uh, the Tarantino written True Romance, Days of Thunder. And this is actually his first theatrical feature. And you might, may or may not remember, but Tony Scott actually committed suicide uh, a few years ago. He jumped off uh, a bridge into the L.A. River. And for those of you that don't know, the L.A. River has no water in it. It's just concrete. Uh, so very sad loss, very unfortunate uh, there. Uh, it was written by James Costigan, uh, did nothing else to note, and Michael Thomas. He did Lady Hawk and The Devil's Double. Uh, they, they, those two guys did the screenplay, I should say. It was based on a book, however, by Whitley Strieber. Uh, if you listen, ever listen to Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell back in there, even George Norrie to this day, uh, frequent guest and even collaborator with Art Bell on some things. But uh, Whitley Strieber uh, believes he was abducted by aliens, which he documented in his book Communion, which was also made into a creepy ass movie with Christopher Walken and Wolfen. He also wrote that, which was also a movie. Uh, 
I think D, uh, what's her name? Uh, the 80s mom. D, uh, I keep want to say D. Snyder. <laughs> D. Wallace was uh, in the, I think so. Or maybe I'm confusing it with The Howling. Anyway, it was a werewolf movie. Uh, cinematography was done by Stephen Goldblatt. And let me, oh, this movie, the cinematography in this film is fantastic. It's amazing. One of the best parts about it. Uh, Stephen Goldblatt, great job. He also was a cinematographer for Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. And after that, he did some other stuff. But this, well, here's what blows my mind. But actually, I can kind of see it when I think about it. He went on to be the cinematographer for Batman Forever and, you guessed it, Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. So, he also did Rent and the Help. So he's a, he's a good cinematographer. He can, he, can make, he can make things look gothic and creepy, or he can make things look neon and bright. So very talented cinematographer there. Now, the music's a little uh, – IMDb credits the music as uh, D- Denny Yeager, who did nothing else to note, and Micah Rubini, who also did Manhunter and Split Second with Rutger Hauer. Uh, however, Wikipedia says Howard Blake did the musical score. Uh, he did Flash Gordon – Flash! Ah, ah. Not the mu- – uh, not the not, obviously not the Queen songs, but the score. And uh, Amityville 3D. Uh, and starring <clears> – <throat> I rehearsed this – Catherine Deneuve, because I – went on YouTube and asked, how do you pronounce this lady's last name? Uh, but of course, uh, me and Jesse both came to the consensus that as Americans, we would have said, having not looked it up, Catherine Dinuev. Uh, but she is Miriam, the main star. She's super huge, huge, colossal overseas, big, big time uh, French actress, 142 credits. Uh, other things she was in that uh, were kind of more notable over here on this side of the uh, Atlantic would be Dancer in the Dark with Bjork. And she was an episode of Nip Tuck, a great show to it went off the rails around, I think, the fourth season. Uh, and, of course, starring the late, amazing, iconic David Bowie as John. Of course, Labyrinth, Prestige, Zoolander, numerous albums, The Man Who Fell to Earth, all sorts of stuff. An iconic and very important figure in my young life, at least, with uh, Labyrinth and his music and everything. And the lovely and talented Susan Sarandon as Sarah. It's a labyrinth joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, uh, Rocky Horror, Thelma and Louise, Dead Man Walking. And recently, the last thing I remember seeing her in was one of the worst movies I've ever seen, the Kate Beckinsale starring movie Jolt, which was terrible and featured a scene where they fought in a nursery ward and threw babies at each other. <laughs> and that's your protagonist, by the way. But apparently we live in the age where protagonists can murder children and throw babies, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at you, uh, Stranger Things. No spoilers there. Uh, wink, wink. I have seen all the episodes. That's why I'm winking for that comment. So if you've seen them all, you know what I'm saying. Hopefully. If not, I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm going to keep moving because that's what I need to keep doing. Cliff the Young as Tom. Strangely enough, we had Susan Sarandon in this film, who was Janet in Rocky Horror. And starring opposite her in this film is Cliff the Young as Tom, as I mentioned. But he played Brad in the sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Shot treatment. So we basically have Brad and Janet in this movie. Uh, he was also in Glory, The Craft, Dr. Giggles, Pulse, uh, and Flight of the Navigator. Uh, character actor. He's been in a ton of stuff. When you see him, you recognize him. Uh, speaking of character actors, Dan Hedaya was Latuna Allegreza, uh, Usual Suspects, Mulholland Drive, Clueless, Alien Resurrection. Believe me, you see Dan's face, you're like, oh, that guy. Him and Cliff the Young, they're both, oh, oh that guy's. Uh, Beth Ellers was Alice, and I could have swore. This girl was in something else, but she really reminds, I think what she, she reminds me of um, uh, oh, the sister of Liam Neeson's wife who passed away. Uh, oh, God. Mm, yeah. Jolie Richardson, I think is who I'm looking for. 
I think that's the right name. Speaking of NipTuck, she was on NipTuck. Uh, but uh, she was, this was her big movie role, but then she went into the world of soap operas where she th- th- uh, thrived. She was on Guiding Light from 87 to 08 and All My Children for over 100 and something Ooh. episodes. So she had a very big career in the soap opera world, which, hey, it's steady work. Ain't nothing mm-hmm. to, you know, it's a lot of work because you're doing like an episode a day every year, yeah. practically, you know. Uh, so it is a lot of work, but I mean, hey, you're getting paid every day. I mean, you're making that money. So, hey, you know, nothing to nothing to shy away from there. And as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, a brief cameo uh, as quote or as list as credited, I should say, second phone booth youth, Willem Dafoe, of course, Spider-Man, Last Temptation of Christ, Streets of Fire, which we did a couple weeks ago, The Lighthouse, Boondock Saints, one of the best li- living and working actors out there, in my opinion. Yep. Itty bitty cameo role, one line speaking role. So we got at least, you know, scale, I guess, for saying a line uh, in, the, in SAG. Uh, so worthwhile for him to show up on the set and do that that one day. Uh, but anyway, so The Hunger, let's talk about it. Uh, this was a film. I didn't see it in the 80s. I saw it much later when uh, I read somewhere, either online or in a Fangoria or some magazine or somewhere, like a list of underrated horror movies. And then... Uh, that's where, that's where I came across it and then rented it, found it on D. Actually, no, this, no, actually, I had to buy it off eBay on, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it was DVD to be able to watch it for the first time because nobody had it. It's, you know, now, like, you know, Shout Factory or one of those Arrow Video, one of those uh, big companies that puts out a lot of underground or underappreciated horror movies. It's out, you know, it's out there now. And also, Tony Scott became a much bigger director. And, you know, obviously, the film got more publicity, of course, with Bowie as well and everything. Uh, so I didn't see it when it came out. Obviously, I was three. Uh, an erotic vampire movie would not have been in my wheelhouse at three. I was more hyped about E.T. and Star Wars and Superman. So this wasn't even on my radar. However, uh, this movie. Uh, uh, OK, if you, ha- if you haven't seen it, uh, my recommendation is to see it. Uh, I'm going to get into spoiler territory. And I really suggest that if you've, you're at all interested in an erotic vampire movie, it's only an hour and 37 minutes long. It doesn't waste time. Uh, it's beautiful to look at. And it's really fucked up. So there you go. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want any spoilers, you know, fast forward. We'll talk to you next week. This is going to be a long episode, by the way, when we get into the real world part, because we're talking about Pride Month and everything, like we did with uh, uh, you do some historical background on that as well. But anyway... Uh, so spoiler territory now, Jesse, hopefully you, if you haven't seen it, I'm pretty sure you, I would guess that you haven't because it's kind of an under, you know, it's a cult, a true cult movie. Like we talked about kind of the definition of cult movie, but just to make sure, Jesse, have you seen this movie? I have not, but I'm all right with the spoilers. That was my next question. As long as you're okay, I shall proceed. Uh, so anyway, basically the story starts off with, um, movie starts off with, uh, Catherine Deneuve. However, I pronounced it the first time. That was an American version of the last thing. Deneuve. Catching Deneuve. Excuse me. Sorry. I remembered it after saying it. Uh, but basically, her and David Bowie are vampires. Uh, and they once a week, they go to a club and they bring somebody home uh, or a couple people home and, you know, drink their blood. In which, uh, and it's funny too, they never, this is a vampire movie, but they never mentioned the word vampire in it. Uh, but anyway, what starts to happen is, uh, John, uh, David Bowie's character, John, just starts to age. And we come to we come to learn that he's basically the companion. He's not Lestat. He's like the companion, like Louis was, and to use an interview with a vampire thing. Catherine uh, Deneuve is the, like, is Lila, I don't know, the, the, the queen vampire, like Drac- the, the Dracula of the story. Like, she's the, 
she's been a vampire for like thousands of years and she gets compa- she get you know she gets companions but eventually all of her companions just grow old within a week and die well so we think that's where the remember i said it was fucked up we're getting there so yeah he starts to get old but they see on the news that a local scientist aka sarah aka susan sarandon is working with like blood diseases where like there's this disease that causes rapid aging in the blood so it's like so david bowie's like oh maybe she can help me so he goes to like see her and he goes to her all he goes in the morning to her hospital and he's like i need to talk to you and like, very creepy because he just kind of barges in you know in this day and age he'd been hauled out and arrested and he waits for her all day and then she never comes back she tells him to wait 15 minutes and she never comes back she's trying to get rid of him by the time she's like later in the day he's already aged like 10 years like 20 years i mean he's like an old man now he was middle like maybe 50 and now he's looking 70 and he's like oh sarah doctor i forget her last name and she's like, oh, but then she finally believes him. So then he just leaves because he's so pissed off at her, which, hey, don't blame him. Goes home. Well, he tries to feed, too. Again, he's a vampire. Uh, and the rule, the va- traditional vampire rules don't take place in this movie. Like, they can go in sunlight. There's no stakes through the heart. It's very unique in its mythology. Uh, I'm kind of jumping around because I'm remembering things as I'm telling it to you. So sorry about that. But uh, anyway, uh, and, you know, again, I said it was fucked up. Let's get to the fucked up shit. Uh, there's this little girl who the vampires, both of them give violin lessons to Miriam plays the piano. John plays the cello and they're teaching her the violin. Well, she shows up to tell Miriam, the lead vampire. Oh, I can't come to my lesson the next day. And David Bowie, like, she's like, well, can I just leave a message for her? So like, he lets her in. Yeah. David Bowie straight up, straight up kills this child in this movie. And it's like brutal and scary. Like, I was just like, gee, I don't, I didn't remember any of this. And it's just like, wait a second. Oh my God. He straight up kills this kid. Uh, very brutal scene. Uh, and then Miriam comes home. She's like, oh, you're so old. I'm so sorry. I still love, I do love you, blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, oh, shit, what have you done? Finds out, you know, kills the kid. She's phased by it for a minute. But anyway, then it, the film goes on. But what she does to her lovers, and they, uh, I'll get to the, that in the trivia, but her, the people that she converts into vampires tend to be vampires for about 300 years or so. And then they become, hum- or they, then they rapidly age and die. Well, she puts them in coffins and she keeps them. So they're all like, even, and as we learn in the end of the movie, I mean, she has one from like BC times. That's basically a mummy, but it's still alive. So she basically just puts them in coffins and leaves them for hundreds of thousands of years. And she keeps them like with her, which is really fucked up when you think about it. Mm. Now, does David Bowie deserve that for killing this kid? Absolutely. Uh, Bit of a hoarder. But that's one thing I like about the, what's that? (laughs) Bit of a hoarder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on this episode of orders <laughs> but um you know so it's the, the the thing i really ate the visual style of this movie is amazing it looks like an 80s music video uh you can tell tony and scott and ridley are cut from the same cloth because uh, it's very reminiscent of 80s ridley scott uh you know blade runner legend that is his good his good period of films uh tony scott great director in his own right you know, they're not, you know, they're brothers. So, you know, that's the only reason I'm making that comparison, but it's visually striking. The music's great. It's very well acted. My only real complaint with this film is how is the story is how the story just ends. Uh, so I kind of, I've, I've given you the main beats, but in the end, in the very end, uh, well, you know, uh, well, let me, let me step back just a little bit. Susan Sarandon comes to the house. Like, Oh, I need to talk to, to John. Hey, I, I want to talk about this thing. It, it's, it's for my research. I can help him. And, well, Miriam falls in love with Sarah and wants to make her her companion. That's where you get the LGBTQ plus angle. The lesbian, you know, again, a lot of people look at this film as just like, oh, it's that lesbian vampire movie. It's fucking hot, dude. But what it 
what it does, and it, again, this has become a cult film in multiple subcultures, multiple demographics. Horror fans, vampire fans, goths, gays. A lot, it, it, fits a, it fits a lot of, it checks a lot of boxes, I guess you could say. Uh, but the, the lesbianism in the film is handled, there's no like, and again, I, you know, I'm not a part of the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community. I would consider myself as best of an ally as I can be based on my knowledge of it. Uh, in that regard, but you know the way the film portrays that in, in it, it's just like it's not. There's nothing wrong with it, which I think is. I, that's why I really like Shit's Creek. I don't know if, if you've seen that, Jesse. That TV show, really great show. But when they handle gay characters in it, it's just it's. There's nothing unusual about it. It's very okay. Is it you know not not that you don't need to draw attention to those issues. I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of people are like, oh, I hate when people have an agenda and push it down my throat. <laughs> wink, wink, pun. Uh, but, um, you know, so I'm not saying that you don't need that, but I'm saying the way it's handled is organic. So it, it doesn't pull away or detract from the, the story. It's just everything fits and it flows. It's not like, like, for example, when Cliff Young is angry at Susan Sarandon, it's not he's angry that she had an affair, not that she had a lesbian encounter. You know what I'm saying? They keep it, uh, I guess, just where, you know, it's, it's, it's not an issue. That part doesn't matter in, right. in terms of it being controversial. Now, the film was controversial about it when it came out. Mm-hmm. Get more into that later. Uh, but it's a pretty hot sex scene. It's a good sex scene. <laughs> it's what, and I'm not saying that just because I'm a straight male. Oh, it's two lesbians. Oh, that's the cool kind of stuff. No, it's, it's again, this film is very well done. Tony Scott and his direction and the cinematography of Stephen Goldblatt. It's sexy. I mean, it's, it's a sexy fucking movie. Uh, you know, so it's just, it's, and it's really interesting. And, but anyway, getting to the end. So basically in the end, uh, again, this is my only complaint with the film. They don't, there's not that you need an explanation, but it's just a convenient kind of ending, so to speak. Uh, so Miriam uh, brings Susan Sarandon's husband, Tom Cliff the Young over there for her to feed because she has the hunger. That's the title <laughs> of the film. Uh, and he ends up dying, but then when then she stabs Miriam and they and makes her drink her blood, which seems oh why is that why would that do anything wrong? Well, then all the other dead uh, vampires in her attic in her horde in her dead companion horde, not like horde in terms of a lot of people, but like you were saying, Jesse H O A R D, not H O R D E. Although they eventually the horde becomes a horde because they just come out and like oh Miriam, and then like she's like no no no, and they're like attacking her, and then she falls down the stairs, and then in the one of the most disturbing sequences to me in a movie is when she falls and she's screaming and she's aging. Like she's becoming ancient as she's screaming. Like she's like, ah, it's, it's slow motion. She's changing. It's really, it's a really creepy end scene. Uh, when Miriam is like aging and dying, it's very, very creepy uh, and effective I'd say. But it's like, there's like, it's just like, why, why is this happening? Like there's no logical reason why she fell down the stairs and she's becoming a mummy. And then uh, anyway, but then the film ends with Susan Sarandon now, the head vampire, so to speak, and Miriam's in a box. So she gets her just dessert, so to speak, for imprisoning her lovers for so long and all that credits roll. But yeah, the movie, like I said, it's it's moody. It's atmospheric. If you like vampire movies and you haven't seen it, it's a great vampire movie. Uh, It's one of those that doesn't follow any rules, but the ones that it sets out. And again, the only rule that it doesn't mention is why the ending happens. 
that's the only thing. But again, you, you just take it for what it is. It's fine. It's beautifully, again, beautifully shot. Uh, you know, you could just honestly, if you don't even watch it, you know, this is a movie you could put on in the background of a Halloween party, and you just have you know Bauhaus, which opens the film playing over it or something. You better look, ghost sees dead. Just have some atmospheric music playing over it while you're playing, you know, a video game or something. But it's it's a it's, it, it works like that. Uh, it's not a movie I'm gonna watch. I, I would watch every year, but every time I watch it, it's like, oh shit, I forgot he killed that kid, <laughs> and it's like, mm. god damn it, David Bowie, that's fucking vicious, man. You know, so uh, it has its merits. I think it's. I think it's definitely a cult. It's it, like we've discussed before, like actual cult movies uh, on recent episodes. And I would say this is definitely this definitely fits in that area of an actual legitimate cult film. But the cool thing about The Hunger is it's a cult film for the goss, for the gays, for vampire fans, all sorts of things. Uh, so again, that's kind of you know in hind- uh, not in hindsight but in closing i guess <laughs> for that part i think it kicks ass it's it's super fun oh well, fun no fun's not the wrong word it's intense it's a it, it it when i put it on and i saw the time was an hour and 37 my memory's like God, i thought it was like 2 hours because it's it's amazing how uh the direction the cinematography and the acting and everything can play into how um you know, time works in the movie. And then, and it's, and one of the things that I, I really like about the film, I don't know if I made it abundantly clear earlier, or if I said it, if I'm repeating myself, I do apologize, but I love how it subverts who you kind of sympathize with in the film. Cause you know, of course they just kill two random club goers. I mean, they're vampires. Okay. You kind of understand that blah, blah, blah. But then, uh, you know, and then David Bowie starts growing like, Oh, like, you know, you imagine like you've lived for so long and you grow old in a week. You know, it's just like, ah, that, that's pretty terrifying. And then he kills a kid. You're like, well, fuck you, David Bowie. And then, you know, well, Miriam's all sad that he's dying. And then you realize, oh, wait, this bitch is keeping her lovers alive, basically, you know, in the, you know, just in these tombs, like spending eternity in a tomb and you're dead. I mean, you're, you're, you can't do anything. You're, you're conscious, you're aware, but you're, uh, you can't do anything. You know, it's real. Like I said, it's fucked up. It's really fucked up when you think about it in that regard. But anyway, let's talk about some of the trivia and get on to some of the other stuff. Uh, David Bowie was, he reportedly was intimidated by Catherine Deneuve, but he got on really well with Susan Sarandon. And Bowie actually learned to play the cello for his music scenes, which I would probably wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that he probably incorporated that in some of his music too afterwards. Hmm. Uh, Bowie also said that in order to make his voice suitably hoarse uh, to, while he aged, so drastically in the film, he stood on the George Washington Bridge every night and screamed all the punk rock songs he knew. So can you imagine wow. <laughs> you're walking on the uh, George Washington Bridge and you just see some crazy guys, you know, screaming punk songs around 1982. If you remember that, you passed right by David Bowie and didn't know it, man. <laughs> Shame on you. And then in an interview in late July 2014, Susan Sarandon revealed that she had an affair with David Bowie while the two were working on the film. Now, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast or not, but Susan Sarandon, uh, you know, Sarandon, oh, oh, yeah, like Chris Sarandon, yeah, from Fright Night and Princess Bride. Yeah, they were married. That's where she got that name. Her last name is Sarandon because she was, in fact, married to Chris Sarandon, not brother and sister. They were husband and wife. And while they were married is when her, star, you know, she pretty much became famous. So after they divorced, she kept the name. Uh, however, I'm not sure if they were divorced by the filming of this movie to where she cheated on Prince Humperdinck with 
Jareth from Labyrinth. So not sure of the time frame there. But she says she had an affair with him while they were working on it. And funny enough, Ridley Scott was actually set to direct the film, but he passed on it when he heard that David Bowie was in on it. Which, uh, why? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he thought Bowie, you know, I mean, oh, you know, I mean, again, Ridley Scott has created some of the greatest films ever made. But his, the films he's made, he's made in the past 10 years are shit. He has lost his edge. He is nowhere near the visionary director he was. Not that, the, I mean, I would say the same thing for Spielberg, although he's kind of getting his mojo back, I'd say. You know, uh, he, instead of doing, you know, stuff like War Horse, he did, uh, I mean, he, well, he did War Horse, but he did War Horse and he did, uh, oh, God damn it, uh, Ready Player One. You know, he did something a little more fun. You know, so Ridley Scott has not done anything fun. He keeps, you know, he keeps blocking Neil Blomkamp from making anything related to Alien. And he keeps pumping out crap like Alien Covenant instead of letting somebody else take a crack at it. You know, so maybe that's just how directors work. I don't know. But uh, hopefully not. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, really, again, really Scott, uh, Legend, Blade Runner. Um, what else in his early career? What am I missing? Uh, Black Rain with Michael Douglas, Gladiator. Uh, speaking of Susan Sarandon, Thelma and Louise. I'm missing a big one. For, Alien. God, that's the one. I was, that's the main one I was trying to remember. <laughs> uh, Alien. You know, I mean, he, Alien and Blade Runner are two of the most influential films of all time, and he did them within like three years of each other. Like, see, Alien was at 79, Blade Runner was 82. Yeah, within three years, he made two of the most influential film films ever. Not to mention his 1984 Apple commercial has long been considered the greatest commercial ever made. I mean, the man. What I will honestly, he was incredible. He was an incredible director, and look at what he's done recently. <laughs> My opinion. If you disagree, hey, that's cool. Let me know about it. He's visited at gmail.com. Funny enough, this was one of four theatrical films starring David Bowie that released in 1983. So he had four movies in 83, strangely enough. Uh, the others were a cameo in Yellowbeard and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and his concert film, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which was made in 73, but it was not distributed in wide release until, I'm sorry, did I say 73? Uh, it was made in 73. It wasn't widely released until 83. Uh, if I misspoke, pardon me. I can't remember if I did or not. Uh, one day during filming, the costume designer, Melina Cananero, she's notorious in her job for being dedicated to the craft of costume designing. Uh, they couldn't find her. She disappeared. It eventually, eventually figured out that she had flown to Rome to purchase fabric for a handkerchief that Bowie is supposed to wear. And she couldn't find the fabric she liked in London. So she hopped on a plane to Rome at her own expense to get the fabric she needed and flew back for the scene. So that's dedication to your craft for sure. Uh, Bowie said of the film, after it was made, he said, I must say, there's nothing that looks like it on the market, but I'm a bit worried that it's just perversely bloody at some points. And there are some bloody scenes, obviously. He's not involved in too many of them in terms of the, the like gratuity, what I would consider gratuitous blood. But uh, Bauhaus opens the movie, like I mentioned earlier, with Bella Lugosi's dead uh, because Tony Scott discovered him in a London nightclub and said, hey, want you in the movie. And thus, they're in the movie. So it's never again. It's not, a lot of the stuff is not said in the film, but I mean, you see Miriam's former lovers in all different time periods throughout the film. But basically, you could kind of gauge that David is represented as being three hundred years old, and including his coffin, there's a total of seven coffins. So you take on average three hundred, the standard life expectancy that would take things back to around a thousand BC, which correlates loosely 
to the Egyptian lover scene in a flashback. So over the years, Catherine has transported the remains of her former lovers across Europe and the Atlantic. Uh, going four millennia, one may assume she has a great deal of shipping to do. So <laughs> she's just shipping bodies all over the place. Uh, but again, the film set in New York. However, it was entirely shot in Londinium. Uh, Tony Scott wanted to shoot the whole film in New York, but they had to film in London because it was cheaper to film in London than to shoot in New York. So, hey, guys, we're over mm-hmm. here in uh, New York, uh, but we can't shoot here because it's too expensive, so it's cheaper to fly us all to England. Although, honestly, most of the cast are English, Tony Scott's English. So they might have already been over there to begin with. <laughs> so maybe that yeah. is, in fact, why. Maybe it's the reverse of what I said as to why it was cheaper. That's Honestly, that's probably log- more logical, for sure. Hans Zimmer was considered to score the film by the music uh, director Howard Blake, but Tony Scott turned him down. He would later try to get Zimmer to work for him on a number of films, uh, including Beverly Hills Cop 2, but never worked out. Uh, the, fil- the ending that I mentioned where it shows uh, Susan Sarandon as basically now being a vampire and Miriam in a coffin uh, was actually something that the studio, MGM, wanted to allow for the possibility of sequels in a franchise, which was, of course, common at the time, but nevertheless did not happen. More on that in just a second. And uh, what Sarandon actually said of the change ending, she said, and this is Susan Sarandon's quote. Uh, I'm not going to try to do her voice because I don't know how she, you know. Uh, the thing that made the film, uh, that's not her. No, I'll just read it normal. The thing that made the film interesting to me was this: que- was the question of, would you want to live forever if you were an addict? But as the film progressed, the powers that be rewrote the ending and decided that I wouldn't die. So what's the point? All the rules we'd spent the entire film delineating, delineating that Miriam lived forever and was indestructible and all the people that she transformed eventually died and that I killed myself rather than being an addict were ignored. So suddenly I was kind of living and she was kind of half dying. Nobody knew what was going on. And I thought that was a shame. Um, I guess I can kind of agree with that. Although the end, I mean, it, it suits the ending of her, you know, being in prison basically, although it would have been more gloomy. I guess. Ah, no, I, honestly, well, I'm talking about, it, I agree with Serena. I think it would have been better if she had not, you know, they, they just left it to where Miriam was alone or something and didn't have to find another one. You know, life goes on for her. Un, unlife goes on for her or something. So yeah, the ending does see, I can see, I can see her point on the ending. And I think they definitely have a point with that, to be honest with you. As I mentioned, the, the novel was by Whitley Strieber, and he did write two sequels to this novel. Uh, they were The Last Vampire in 2001 and Lilith's Dream, A Tale of the Vampire Life in 2003, but neither have been optioned and neither have been filmed. Uh, it did, however, spur a short-lived three, uh, TV series of the same name starting in 97, which ran for about three years. Uh, it first was first broadcast 14 years after the movie. It utilized the same title and vampire lore, but no plot, no character, no connections with the film except the fact that it was a show about vampires and used the term The Hunger, which is a shame. That had been a great way to just have one – just like how kind of Freddy's Dead – uh, the TV show did with the first two episodes. They, the first two episodes told the origin of Freddy Krueger on network television. Uh, they, you know, you got a series based on this. Do one episode to relate to the film. That's all you got to do. Just one would have been fine. Uh, the film has been cited by the publisher Fred Berger as an influence on the creation and direction of his gothic subculture magazine Propaganda, and by showrunner showrunner Brian Fuller on his television series Hannibal. So if you're a Hannibal fan, this movie pretty much influenced it. Uh, Score wise. Again, this movie oozes style. Uh, some would argue much more style over substance. I think the substance is there until the very end. Uh, like I said, I mean, it's visually striking. It's just, it's got such a tone and it's fucked up what happens in it. I mean, it really is. 
uh, when you really think about it. Uh, but I give it an eight personally. I, I really, I think it's a really good movie. It's not one to watch a lot because I find it heavy with the fucked up stuff I've mentioned multiple times, but it's, it's visually striking, uh, well acted, well done, well shot, all that kind of cool stuff that just make a cool ass movie. Not fun. This isn't a fun movie, <laughs> but it's a, I would say it's a good movie. Uh, but what did the critics think? Uh, the critic Camille Pagilia wrote in Sexual Persona in 1990, I guess that's a magazine, <laughs> that while The Hunger comes close to being a masterpiece of classy genre vampire film, it is, quote, ruined by horrendous errors as when the regal Catherine Deneuve is made to crawl around on all fours slavering over cutthroats, which uh, this author considered an inappropriate focus on violence rather than sex, uh, the critic Elaine Showalter called The Hunger a, quote, postmodernist vampire film that casts vampirism in bisexual terms, drawing on the tradition of the lesbian vampire, contemporary and stylish. It is also disquieting in its suggestion that men and women in the 80s have the same desires, the same appetites, and the same needs for power, money, and sex. Uh, David Bowie himself later commented about the film that the first, quote, the first 20 minutes rattle along like hell. It really is a great opening. I'd agree with the first spot. Uh, yeah, but uh, so that's what the critics say. That's what Bowie says. Now, of course, it is June here in the United States, and as people love to maybe a little inappropriately joke about, all the companies have switched their logos to rainbows, whether they're genuine or disingenuous about it. At least it's some visibility. It is Pride Month here in the United I guess it's worldwide. I'm not sure if it's a, just a U.S. thing. I would assume it's worldwide. Uh, but the 80s were not really not kind to our LGBT, LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters Uh in the film, in, in the film world, uh, rampant stereotypes and their, the murderous gay trope were frequent. For example, cruising with Al Pacino in 1980, and uh, Dress to Kill with Michael Caine, uh, Brian De Palma film. Great movie in a sense, but again, representation matters. That's what, uh, woke alert, woke alert! Oh my god, my god, my god! They're talking facts. Uh, but anyway, a little history. I thought it'd be appropriate to just kind of go over stuff, and we can all learn something. Uh, now I'm quoting. It's a little bit of a read here, so it's a little heavy in terms of uh, volume of what I'm, of words is what I mean by that. But uh, it's a history of LGBTQ plus representation in film by Stacker. Uh, I've got my, my source is Stacker.com. Uh, they go through all cinema. I'm only going pretty much uh, early 80s to mid 80s. We'll do the rest next episode. Uh, but again, this is not my words. This is an article I'm reading uh, a little bit to give a little uh, – better than I could write, at least uh, setting the stage for what the 80s meant for representation. And again, uh, stacker.com, just search that. You probably can find the whole article. Very good if you want to go the whole history of uh, uh, LGBTQ plus representation in film. But anyway, the article goes on to say, depictions of queer and trans people have been present in film since its inception more than 100 years ago. But due to censorship and varying degrees of prejudice against the LGBTQ plus community at different points in time, on-screen representation has a long, complicated, and often coded history. While gay characters were frequently used for laughs or not explicitly stated to be queer in the earliest mainstream Hollywood films, a brief relaxation in Germany's film production code in the early 20th century allowed for LGBTQ plus classics like Different from the Others and Madchen and Uniform. Uh, article goes on to say, in Hollywood, however, the strict Hayes Code forbade explicit depictions of homosexuality in film for three decades, during which was a, there was a slew of queer-coded villains. Afterward, gay characters appeared more often, but in tragic stories like 1961's The Children's Hour, 
And although representation remained sparse over the next few decades, queer camp in the 70s saw a rise in popularity with the increased prominence of such classics, universal classics, as the Rocky Horror Picture Show and the films of John Waters, Pink Flamingos, etc. Later, the new queer cinema in the late nine in the 90s, excuse me, flourished as many independent filmmakers, many of whom were gay themselves, told fluid, empathetic stories about queer individuals. And then in 2017, that recently Moonlight made history, even though many people thought it was La La Land due to a goof. Uh, as the first LGBTQ plus movie to win the Oscar for Best Picture, the film, which features an all-black cast, was one of the was one big step forward towards making gay cinema that isn't whitewashed, featuring a range of identities, and doesn't make its queer characters one note or vehicles of suffering. Now, keep that last bit in mind. Uh, when we we're going back to the '80s now, uh, and this is I'm this I have the article now. These are my words. Uh, as the article said, you know, pretty much the problem was. And especially in the 80s, when you look at uh, gay representations in the 80s, look at Mannequin, for example, is one that comes to mind immediately. Uh, but you know, it was whitewashed. It, range of, it, it didn't have any identity. It was just queer people who were one note or the villains. It was, you know, it was, the 80s were, were not kind at all to our friends and family in the LGBTQ plus community at all. For example, in 1980, you had Cruising, which I mentioned. There was a huge backlash for that film. Uh, it's about an undercover cop who searches for a serial killer who's been targeting members of the gay S&M leather community. Uh, directed by William Friedkin, who did The Exorcist, The French Connection, Ninth Configuration. Uh, it was reviled by many gay viewers with one pamphlet saying that in the film, quote, gay men are presented as one-dimensional sex-grace lunatics. It is a film about why we should be killed. Uh, 1982, you had Making Love. Uh, gay screenwriter Barry Sandler decided to write a script about a married man who realizes he's gay and falls in love with another man in an effort to make up for uh, the many negative gay film stereotypes from the previous decades. Uh, the film became Making Love in 82, and according to the director, it was meant to be, quote, the first mainstream Hollywood film to deal with the subject of homosexuality in a positive way, offering positive role models. The next year, you have The Hunger, which became a queer cult classic, as I mentioned in this episode. And in 1985, you had Desert Hearts, which gave lesbians a happy ending. In the film, uh, directed by Donna Dietsch, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, tracks a romance that develops between a repressed English professor Vivian and free-spirited rancher's daughter Kay. It's regarded as the first mainstream lesbian film with a happy ending. And then in 1986, uh, you had Parting Glances. It was a first-time director, Bill Sherwood, who was also gay, uh, is regarded as the first film to deal with the AIDS crisis. More on that in just a second. Uh, which had a devastating impact on gay and bisexual men, in particular in the late 80s and early 90s. Sherwood himself would die from the disease before he could make more films. However, Parting Glances remains a historic work of LGBTQ plus cinema. Now, one of the biggest reasons, now I'm no expert, but just in my reading and research for this episode, pretty much one of the biggest reasons for the lack of of good gay representation in film in the eighties was largely, it was, it was, I think it was twofold. A, you're still kind of coming, you know, society is progressing baby steps. I know it sometimes it seems like we're going two steps back in this country, but you know, it's working, you know, it's getting better. It's getting a little better. You know, you're getting some bright points. Like I mentioned in these, uh, this kind of timeline of gay cinema in the eighties, but at the same time you have AIDS and for all of our any of our listeners, which I doubt there are probably even that many of them uh, who you know weren't alive in the '80s, or even you know or even aware, even the '90s too. To be honest with you, you know a lot of young people don't understand because AIDS is livable now. That's that's the, that that is from years and years of research 
and all sorts of stuff that has allowed people with AIDS to thrive now. Medication is still ridiculously expensive, as I can tell from my research, which is that's just as ridiculous. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't work to make things better. But anyway, here's a quick timeline of AIDS. And I, th- I personally find this very fascinating because I was a child at the time, you know, literally, literally a child. And I remember seeing commercials about being, you know, basically fear mongering, you know, the opposite of COVID people with COVID were like, Oh, it's not that bad. 1% die with AIDS. It was like, I mean, I remember my parents telling me, you know, no shade to them. I mean, it was the time and you know, it was, there was hysteria about AIDS in the eighties. You know, my parents, we'd go to the mall and like, if you go to that bathroom, you pad that seat, son. You pad that seat. Yes, ma'am. Like, I was scared. If I didn't pad the seat, I was going to die. You don't get any diseases from not padding the seat, <laughs> by the way. You cannot pad your seat. Uh, I would recommend wiping it <laughs> to make yeah. sure before you sit down in a public toilet. But you don't need to pad the seat. You don't contract uh, sexually transmitted diseases through your butt skin. Uh, at least to my knowledge. I'm not a... CDC, uh, what is it, an epidemiologist? I'm not sure. Whatever, whatever the term is for a disease specialist, diseaseologist, I don't know. But in all seriousness, uh, June 5th, 19, actually, what's today? One, uh, let's see, 1981, uh, 41 years ago, yesterday, the first case was reported by the, uh, of a mis- quote at the time, June 5th, 1981, myster- the CDC reports its first case of a quote, mysterious illness. And it doesn't mean that was the first case of AIDS. It was merely the first time a an agency acknowledged that something is out there. Uh, July 3rd, 1981, the New York Times reports on a, quote, rare cancer outbreak in gay men. Uh, by 1981, the U.S., this, the deaths I'm giving are only U.S., they're not worldwide. 234 deaths in 1981 due to AIDS uh, that we know of. 1982, the first cases emerged in Africa. In January 4th, 1982, Gay Men's Health Crisis is established as the first nonprofit community-based AIDS service provider. April 13th, 1982, the first congressional hearing on, quote, a new illness. And then later on that year, about a, a couple, a few months later, in September, on September 24th, 1982, the CDC first uses the term AIDS, which, if you don't know, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And by the end of 1982, America had 853 deaths due to AIDS. And, of course, you got people in this day and age like, oh, it's, that's not that many. <laughs> One is too many. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I mean. Don't be an asshole. One death is too many from anything. Uh, January 7th, 1983, two female patients with male sex partners develop AIDS, which was the first suggestion of sexual transmission. 1983, if I just don't give a date but a year, there was no actual date uh, listed in the information I could find. In 1983, HIV was discovered and discovered to be the cause of AIDS because to get AIDS, you – hopefully I'm not misspeaking because I'm not a scientist, like I said – HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. You get HIV, then you get AIDS. Uh, June 9th, 1983, two people living with AIDS storm the stage at the second annual AIDS Forum in Denver. Their statement becomes known as the Denver Principles, which is basically just, hey, don't treat us like we're monsters or, you're, you know, we're, we're, we want to be treated with dignity. Because, it, again, there is such – in the 80s, there was such a stigma. Uh, I mentioned uh, earlier this year about one, some of my favorite films of the year. One of them was uh, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And a, one of the great scenes in that movie, and one of the greatest things she ever did, probably the great, the best thing she ever did, uh, in her with her life that we know about, you know, uh, to be fair, is you know people didn't want if if people knew you had in the eighties, if you knew someone with AIDS, or if if you were in the store and you coughed and you had AIDS, people would run away screaming. I mean, it was it was an incredible stigma. Don't touch me. Don't hug me. Don't don't do anything. Stay away from me. A, you know, on one hand. 
it's somewhat reasonable on from a logical perspective because there is a disease that we don't know anything about that's killing people. Yes. However, that doesn't mean you take away people's dignity. There's a whole part in Rent about it. A great song in Rent about <laughs> can I keep my dignity? Um, so that was a really big moment for the AIDS community. Uh, later that year, on July 30th, 1983, Congress finally funded the first AIDS research with a $12 million grant to research the disease. Uh, November 22nd, 1983, the World Health Organization holds its first meeting on AIDS and begins surveillance to where they start actually tracking stuff and seeing what trying to get a handle on it. Uh, by that time in 1983, uh, 2,304 Americans were dead from the disease. In uh, 1984, we had 4,251 4, deaths, including, quote, patient zero, Gaten Dugas. Now, let's dispel a myth right here. There, We do not know who patient zero was. Gaten Dugas, there was a documentary that came out. I forgot the name of it. I guess I should have wrote it down, but pretty much said, like, oh, this guy was patient zero because he had like 750 sex partners or something, and he's the first kind of like recorded uh, AIDS case, I guess. Not sure. Uh, but it's, but Gaten Dugas was not patient zero. Uh, how did, well, how did he become to be? How did this myth get started? Well, let me tell you, son, sit on my knee while I tell you a story of, uh, patients in the Los Angeles cluster study were given case numbers with a letter and numbers based on they were, where they were from and, uh, when they were identified as having HIV, he was listed as case O. Five, seven. The O stood for outside of California. Along the way, the letter O was somehow mistaken for the number zero, and thus the term, quote, patient zero was born erroneously crediting Gaten Dugas as, you know, as what some people would say, oh, he's the cause of all that. No, 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 that's not how it works. Uh, so very, you know, he went to the grave thinking that, and unfortunately, uh, so shame, uh, very, you know, all of it. It's, it's, it's just, it's really sad. The more like you do re like researching about it and based on what I already knew about the AIDS crisis in the eighties, it's incredibly, incredibly devastating and sad. Uh, 1985, at least one case of AIDS is reported in each region of the world. March 2nd, 1985, the FDI, FDI, <laughs> I don't know who they are. The FDA licenses its first commercial test to detect AIDS in the blood. And then one of the biggest turning points in the, in the, a, the stigma for AIDS on what occurred on June 30th, well, a little bit before that, but this was a big turning point. June 30th, 1985, when, when Ryan White was prohibited from attending school. Now, Ryan White was a little white kid uh, with his whole future ahead of him who contracted AIDS during with a blood transfusion. This is why one of the, the probably the biggest reason. This is why now when you donate blood, you get your results back because they screen it for everything before they go give it to other people because this is people have gotten AIDS from infected blood. Didn't people didn't know it at the time I was transmitted? I mean, it's a terrible accident, but you know, it wasn't anything you know to demean the kid about. But uh, what, what what Ryan White did, you know, I hate to word it like this, but his sacrifice was not in vain, and I mean that in the regard that he gave. Now, we, you know, AIDS was looked at as I'm using rough language here, not my language, but it was termed, oh, that's the gay disease. So that's why you didn't have. A lot of people weren't worried about it. They thought it was, you know, some, as I'll get to a quote from Ryan White's mom, what people were thinking about it because of that, which is disgusting. Um, but Ryan White gave a face to the AIDS epidemic for everybody because now we had a straight white kid who had AIDS. 
Now it that's and this was eighty five. That's when it got scared. That's when it was. That's when the hysteria started. Now everybody can. My child can get AIDS. Yeah, we anybody can get any disease. Well, not that's not true because there are some diseases that affect certain people, and certain demographics. Um, but that terrified people. But um, Ryan White was a face. He fought it as long as he could. He was a he's a hero that should be recognized. And it's not just him. Uh, he was the public face. That's why, you know, there were many people that, you know, everybody that dealt with in the eighties is a hero. You don't get me wrong with my verbiage here. Don't try to twist anything. Uh, not that our listeners do that, but some people might. And (laughs) so just we're on the same page, uh, you know, and, uh, he, he became friends with Elton John, princess Diana, uh, go look at, uh, footage from his funeral. Elton John is sobbing. Uh, I mean, it's somebody died. That is a sad thing, regardless of anything, any politics or anything you bring into it. The loss of a life is not anything good. Uh, in 99% of the cases, Hitler, I'm not talking about him. Uh, people who want to commit suicide is my personal belief that if somebody wants to commit suicide, that's kind you know, you do what you can, but it's their choice. Uh, that's just my point of view. Whoa, progressive alert. Uh, the prog- okay, the progressive alert is going to be because I can't remember two different alarm klaxon sounds. Right. But anyway, all seriousness, uh, listen to this is a quote from Ryan White's mother about how his her son was treated. It was really this is her quote. It was really bad. People were really cruel. People said that he had to be gay. That what he had that he had to have done something bad or wrong, or that he wouldn't have had it. It was God's punishment. We heard the quote "God's punishment" a lot. Mm. That somehow, some way, he had done something he shouldn't have done, or he wouldn't have gotten AIDS. End quote. Now, this is you know people talk. Well, we need God in schools. No, if people we have we have people in this country <laughs> who you know consider themselves religious, various denominations, but they would say to this child who contracted AIDS that it's God's punishment on him for doing something wrong. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or religious or anything to see the erroneousness of that statement. You know, you want to talk about, oh, we don't have enough people believing in God because the people that believe, and again, this is a generalization. I believe in God. I know it's not everybody. That's a big problem we have in our society. People say, you know, it's the same thing when people say black lives matter and people immediately say all lives matter. Well, you're not wrong in, in what you're thinking, but you're not understanding what black lives matter means. People just don't think about what things mean when people say something like, oh, God, I hate white people. They're not talking about you unless you're the one doing the things that are bad. A lot of white people are. Doesn't mean that everyone, you can't, you have to understand a generalization is a generalization. Uh, so what, anyway, back what I'm saying is, you know, how despicable of somebody, anybody who claims to be religious to tell a child, parent of a child, anybody that AIDS was God's punishment for them doing something. No, that makes no sense in any regard. That is terrible. That's what that, and that's, that's not just what Ryan White had to deal with. Every person with AIDS had to deal with that. He was just a public face because of his age and, and skin color. To be perfectly honest with you, that is why. Uh, anyway, let's move on uh, to September 17th, 1985. Here's the, here's the big name people hate to hear when, when talk about AIDS. President Ronald Reagan mentions AIDS publicly for the first time 
1985. Uh, the next month, uh, less than a month later, on October 2nd, 1985, Rock Hudson dies. Famous actor. Your, your, your grandparents know about him if you don't know who he is. Uh, it was his death, uh, being a well-known movie star from the 50s, 60s, maybe into the 70s. I'm not sure. I just remember he was in Pillow Talk with Doris Day because my grandparents loved that movie and ended up watching it a lot. Uh, but his death brought widespread awareness to the U.S. public. And in his will, he left $250,000 to help set up the American Foundation for AIDS Research with Elizabeth Taylor as its founding chairperson. And by the end of 1985, we had 5,636 people lost to AIDS. Uh, in around 1980, uh, uh, in terms of the world numbers, in 1980, you had around 100,000 people living with HIV. Five years later, you had nearly 1 million. Uh, and again, the 80s were not a good time uh, to be in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, today isn't either in a lot of places. <laughs> Yeah. I, mean, I hate to say it, you know, which is a shame. Um, but you had the AIDS stigma into that in the 80s, and it was it's terrifying. It really, if you it, watch, go do some research, read some books, watch some documentaries, uh, it's just, it's, it's terrifying. It's tragic. It's sad. And it's, it, it makes me even more sick to think about how it happened, you know, how it was then, me being too young and naive to even understand it, which I guess that was a small mercy for me at the time growing up for it and other kids. Uh, thankfully, I guess, in our heart, you know, what privilege that we had for that. But, you know, with COVID, it's just like, oh, it's only 1%. Well, yeah, and, you know, COVID was two years. We got a million people dead, Americans. And people are still like, whatever. It was government, you know, it was all propaganda from the government. Like, shut the fuck up. Oh, my God, somebody's talking since. And I, I can't listen to it because it's not my confirmation bias for my skewed political beliefs. Anyway, don't want to get too political like last week, but we got to get a little political <laughs> when we talk about this stuff. And we'll continue the other half of the decade next week in the Back to the Future segment. But in the, uh, to, to end the conversation about the, uh, you know, basically LGBTQ plus representation in film in the 80s, that's a big reason. Uh, AIDS caused an increase in homophobia and hysteria across the United States and in many other places in the world. Uh, and to be honest... It wasn't really until the 90s that we saw a big turn in gay representation in film. And it took straight white actor Tom Hanks in 1993's Philadelphia, uh, who won the Oscar for his portrayal of a lawyer who's fired for having AIDS in Philadelphia, uh, helping to dispel the myth that taking on LGBTQ plus roles would ruin a straight actor's career. It was also the first major Hollywood film to focus on the AIDS epidemic. Uh, but in the, in the 90s were a great time, you know, night and day. Because when I was looking for films to do for Pride Month, it, it's hard. Mm -hmm. There's, a, I mean, I didn't, the films I mentioned earlier, I didn't even know. I can't even find copies of some of them to watch. Uh, because most of the films, Dress to Kill, Cruising, they're not good representations. So we're not going to give them the light of day and the uh, focus during Pride Month. That is completely inappropriate and a misuse of, you know, being an ally, I guess. Uh so, uh, it, but the '90s, you had Philadelphia, you had uh, the exploitation classic Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which if you've never seen it, you should because it's a great movie with Guy Pearce, um, Terrence Stamp, and uh, Agent Smith. God, oh shit, Hugo Weaving. It's an amazing film. Uh, you also had Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, both off Broadway. It didn't come on Broadway till recently, a few years ago. When uh, I say a few, probably about ten years ago, I guess. Uh, but the actual movie with John Cameron Mitchell, I think, was late 90s. Because I remember seeing that 
maybe it was it was either late 90s or early 2000s just can you look that up for me so i don't miss i really want to not miss maybe it was maybe i want to say 2001 or 99 for hedwig and the angry inch the movie because i remember being in college and i graduated in 98 when i first when it came out and that's when i saw it 2001 haha <laughs> first first guess was right of a year at least but uh yeah i mean the 90s we saw a change is when it started to change for the better. It, what you, I mean, not, not everything was, don't get me wrong. And it's still not today, uh, but it's getting there. You know, there, if you look at the, the LGBTQ plus representation today, as compared to the eighties night and fucking day, mm-hmm. thankfully that's 40 years later though, people 40 years. Um, whereas, you know, uh, when you compare it I, again, I'm not a sociologist. I'm just, spouting i'm just saying what i'm thinking and what my limited time research has shown you know uh african-american representation in film came a lot sooner than uh gay representation uh in terms of you know and you you still see you don't see you know it's you still have racism in the world arguably now it's worse than ever either i'm not sure if it's worse than ever now or we just have so much of a folk there's so much so much of it is revealed because of social media and everything. I'm not, I'm not sure what the exact answer is to that. It's either way. It's not good. Uh, but you know, it's, this is 2022, you know, I mean, we, we should be, and we talk about eighties movies. We talk about, we're talking about society and film from 40 years ago, you know, so it's definitely good that it's changed and we have films, you know, recent films like moonlight and, uh, What's another? Uh, I wish I could think of one off. Uh, a lot of TV. Uh, RuPaul's Drag Race is one of the biggest shows on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's the, the, uh, Pose on Netflix is a big one. Um, you know, you had uh, you had Will and Grace, which from I didn't watch that show, but I know what it's about. I've and some of the, and some of the research I was doing, I saw see that it's pretty much well received. You know, so you have you we have had a you know it has changed for the better, but we're still not where it needs to be which is, in my opinion, like Shit's Creek, to where it's not an issue. Right. Just part of you know, it. Exactly. And yeah. that's not, and again, to clarify, that's not saying it's not recognized, but it's not an issue to where people are <gasps> pearl clutching when a man kisses a man. Right. You know? You know it's, it's just, just reading about it just made me sad. Like, oh, you know, the 80s were such a, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the 80s, but I was a straight little white kid, you know? There were a lot of people out there that didn't and still don't. And that's what's that's who Pride Month is for. And that's what, you know, are am I a perfect ally? No, because I don't know everything. But that's part of respecting it, celebrating it with the people who do and recognizing it as a society can do to make it make the world better. And if that's not your lifestyle, that doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter if it's not your lifestyle, because guess what? It's not your life. You know, tend to your your debt. Dorothy, yeah. actually, that's a bad name. You that's the name of the gay community. <laughs> you know, they call people their Dorothy. I learned that from Drag Race. That's like a friend. Oh, are you a friend of Dorothy? Yo, that, that basically that means you're when you, when you acknowledge that, it means you're you're saying you're gay. And so because uh, I mentioned coded language, that's that was some of the coded language that people would have to use so they didn't get the shit kicked out of them in the eighties, in the nineties, in the two thousands, and up to today. Still, we're still seeing it happen. You know transgender people of color are getting murdered all over the place. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's really frightening. And these are people that deserve our attention, our love and our kindness and our effort to make the world a better place for everybody. Cause it says you know, people, all these gun nuts and, you know, right wing and evangelicals talk about, you know, oh, we got to honor the constitution. We know what the constitution says, the life, 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's about all people. It's not just about a skin color it's a, or a orientation or a religion. It's for everybody. And that's what you got to take away from that. And that's what you should fight every day in this country for, in my opinion. And if you disagree, you know what? Go ahead and, you know, get the fuck out of this podcast because I don't I, there's no point. You're just I'm just wasting our space. You're what you're wasting space, <laughs> even though you're not wasting space because it's digital. So <laughs> you're probably streaming it over your thing. But uh, yeah, so bottom line is, everybody, be kind. Uh, but in the real world, April this movie released April 29th, 1983. Uh, a few days later, on May 6th, Stern Magazine published the Hitler Diaries, which were later found to be forgeries. Fascinating story, if you want to look that up, uh, about how they were trying to publish. They literally tried to push these things as being the words of Hitler and all the stuff he did during the war. Turns out it wasn't. It was fake. Uh, and then a few days later, or the day before the Stern, uh, the Stern published uh, the Stern article about the Hitler Diaries, Henry Cavill, the modern Superman and Witcher, was born. Uh, and then uh, let's see, it released uh, the day after the Hunger released on April thirtieth. Muddy Waters, American musician born in nineteen thirteen, passed away. Uh, following his death, fellow blues musician B.B. King told Guitar World magazine, quote, it's going to be years and years before most people realize how greatly he contributed to American music. But today, Muddy Waters is considered an icon in blues. In fact, uh, one of his biggest songs was Hoochie Coochie Man. But oh, I never heard Hoochie, Hoochie Coochie Man. Well, you ever heard that? That's Muddy Waters. Uh, also, the British band The Rolling Stones named themselves after a Muddy Waters song from the 50s called Rolling Stone. So there you go. If you're on Jeopardy, The Rolling Stones got their name from this song by this artist who is Muddy Waters and what is Rolling Stone. So send me a check for a little portion of the winnings for getting you that answer. Anyway, back to the future this week. We recorded kind of late last week. So the only thing I've – we, me and my wife at least, have managed to see or finish – since last episode was we finished this first half our first part of stranger things so uh i'm not sure jesse where you're at on it or if you watch it or not not too much but it's great it's fine i like it there you go uh excuse me jesse anything of note that you've been able to catch do past couple days Uh, my wife and i finished watching the circle um i think i told you off off uh Air about that was the that game one. show kind of thing with the uh, social media. The social media game show, yeah. It's yeah. On Netflix. Um, but other than that, nope. I think that's it. I think Stranger Things is next. Um, nice. Still watching Barry on HBO. Oh, yeah. I need to remember that. Yeah. That's and, with, uh, what's his name from SNL, right? Uh, Bill Hader. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not at SNL anymore. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, yeah that's pretty good. Um, that's about it yeah i got there's a lot of new stuff on digital i just haven't got a chance to watch a movie yet because with obi-wan and stranger things and stranger things every episode is a movie is like 80 90 minutes almost or every episode is long not complaining but you know when you're trying to binge something yeah it's good (laughs) you know it's it's just you're used to 40 minute episodes and now you're getting double that so well, since, since Days Gone is over, my gaming area is now in uh, Batman Arkham City. Or oh, yeah. Arkham, what is it? Night. That's it. Arkham Yeah, Knight. that's the third one, I believe, right? Yeah. Mm, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> my biggest issue is the car. 
Oh um, yeah, I thought there was too much Batmobile in it. Not only is there too much, but it's very. It's not fun. It's like <laughs> fighting those drones. It's just like really. I mean, that's what they came up with. It's it's you just scooting around, dodging lights, and then shooting mm-hmm. what you can. It's it's very boring. Um, Did you have you done any of the Firefly missions where you got to chase Firefly in the Batmobile? I, I began it. I I did the first. Ugh, one. I have, I'm having flashbacks now thinking of it. Those missions were so bad. Okay, I'm not looking. I mean, what I'm doing is I'm doing the main storyline because, for one, I'm. This is the problem with a lot of these open world games. It's like they introduce this life or death situation, and you know, in this game, you're Alfred saying like, "Yeah, you, you need to go rescue her." But by the way, <laughs> there's some other things you can there's do. There's all these the railroad trophies sitting over the city you might want to catch on the way there. Yeah. Then, you know, take your time with that. But meanwhile, this person's about to die. So I treat it, yes. Of course, <laughs> if you don't go rescue her, everything's going to be fine. They'll wait for you. But, you know, yeah. I treat it as if I'm playing the character. So, yeah, I'm going to go rescue the person. <laughs> time is of the Simeon. essence. But it's really not. That'd be a great implementation in an open world game, though. If they had, like, you know, when they say that. Mean it. You know, you better get over it. You know, like, you have to do yeah. it now. And have some, you know, uh, side storyline that happens whether that person dies, you know, that that can start when that person dies, you know, or when that person lives. or Yeah, and if you don't do it, there's a whole other plot line. You know, that's yeah. replay value, too, in an open world game. It may oh, as well be. Save this person this one. I saw. I was watching someone's video where they're talking about open world versus linear story because I just got done playing Uncharted, which is not open world. Um, mm-hmm. Everything means a lot more in those because you are always going towards that goal. Yeah, you have your side goals of finding things in the place, but you know they're they're just as meaningful as finding Riddler trophies. You know, so it's. I don't know. I'm just going for the goal, <laughs> and they keep throwing yeah. these other things at me. It's like, yep. Uh, Two Face is out there too. Why don't you go check out what he's up to? I, was like, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, like you're Batman. You know, you get like Mr. Wayne. I'm getting reports of Two Face robbing the Gotham Bank, and the Joker's over here killing people. Like you know, to where you have to make a decision. Like okay, if I yes. go stop the Joker, I might say you know I get more renown or something. But if I stop Two Face, I stop his goons and his sector from having money, which mm-hmm. makes them hev- more heavily armored. In their area or something, you See, know, or that'd be cool because can, right now you're leveling, like you're applying your stats to everything, like mask mm-hmm. that in the game instead of making me. Yeah, exactly. Choose. Yeah. Copyright 80s revisited, <laughs> uh, 6 2022. This is our game plan idea. Nobody can steal it. You got to get cut, it, cut us in. Yep, that's but how I, you I know your mentioned- stats through actions, not through just clicking buttons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I know you mentioned uh, Ghost of Tsushima's on your list too, but that one handles it really well to where it's more like, you're, in a, you're on an island that's being invaded. That's, that's happened in the first five minutes. It's not a spoiler. Mm-hmm. So there is like an urgency, but it's not like they're going to kill him now to where you have to like, you know, to where you feel like exploring and going from point to point feels like, you know, you're, the, the urgency is always there at a base level, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. To where like, you know, you never don't feel like you're on an island that's occupied by the enemy and you're fighting against that. Uh so I yeah. think you'll really enjoy, you'll appreciate that when you get to Ghost of uh, Tsushima. I went to go buy it yesterday, but it was out of stock at the game exchange. So I got to go to the the big guys, the the GameStop, to get it. Ruh row. Yeah, because I we went to the mall the other day because we were like, when's the last time we've been to the mall? 
they did they had it in stock there but i wanted to buy it locally but even yeah. though game machines isn't quite local it's regional but uh i'll get it eventually i'm still going through arkham knight so we got to see what that's about you got time. got time yeah let me know because i definitely want to hit the multiplayer because yep. the multiplayer was boss but it's definitely something to look at more like in game once you kind of play you know have a good handle all the game mechanics because it translates mm-hmm. over to it's a, it's not your character from the game you pick like a class but knowledge of the game into deep into the game is needed for the multiplayer because it's all co-op yeah. uh which is really cool so that'll be a ton of fun so we do got an email from our good friend across the pond uk pete and UK Pete says, greetings and salutations to you both. Trey and Jesse, hello. How are you both keeping? Well, I hope. Been a while since my last email. Thought I'd drop you a line from this side of the pond. Q Trey's dreadful British accent. Oi, thanks, Pete, for telling me to do my accent. You're giving me permission. I'm going to do it now, governor. Uh, anyway, no, sorry. <laughs> I'll keep up. I got it out. I'm out of my system. Uh, just finished listening. Uh, Pete goes on to say, just finished listening to Space Camp. Yes, I had seen it, and yes, probably for the same reasons Trey had. Though I was 14 going on 15 by the time I saw it, so my thoughts about Miss Capshaw may have been slightly less innocent. I can't really recall the film too much, and it's been a long time since I saw it. However, your review seems spot on. I also wasn't aware of its release so close to the Challenger tragedy. This does seem a little tasteless given the events of that day, which I too recall watching on TV after school here in the UK. Uh, You mentioned the Netflix documentary Challenger, The Final Flight. I watched this during lockdown, and like you, I was appalled and disgusted at the lack of compassion shown towards the flight crew. The fact that similar lack of maintenance issues affected Columbia a few years later shows NASA never really learned their lesson. Too true on a variety of things, uh, Pete. But but, uh, he goes on to say, anyway, as the... As tragic as as it was, the documentary is really well made, and I urge people to watch it. So there you go. If you don't believe me, UK Pete says watch it too, so cha-cha. He goes on, speaking of space... Star Trek V, The Final Frontier of a Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, all caps, exclamation points, and question marks, are you mad? Uh, hey, if that's your personal preference, then cool. I just never known anyone to have this particular opinion. To me, it seems rather illogical. Uh, <laughs> well, just to rehash, Pete, hey, again, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, I, I, Star Wars is my go-to to where, I, you know, Star Wars Trivial Pursuit, OG Trilogy, I'll beat anybody. I'll beat most people, let me put it that way. <laughs> Uh, Star Trek Trivia Pursuit. If it's not about the movies or the next generation, I'm don't put me on your team. But yeah, uh, again, like uh, Star Trek Four, just I just didn't like them. I the whole whale thing it was just like this is not. And the whole I don't like in any movie where you take a sci-fi character, a futuristic character, and they come to the present and they do the whole fish out of water thing. Mm-hmm. Like oh yes, you know they, they. Which there are some funny moments in Ford. Don't get me wrong. It's just I like Star Trek in the past. I mean, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I like it in the future. The future. Uh, and then I like the whole philosophical aspect of Five better. Four is a better made film, sure. But if I got to pick one, I'm going to watch Five. Uh, but I know, I know that's a hot take because most Trekker, Trekkies uh, love Four. But as we stated, as I stated on the episode, just my preference. And hey, you know what, Pete? I'm so glad that we can still be friends over that. Uh, but he's also he finishes up by saying, "I'm glad you seem to have gotten back to a weekly schedule and show. You're a highlight of my weekend. It's good to reminisce over a more innocent time." The Spinal Tap episode was very enjoyable, as this is a personal favorite film of mine. If you have this on Blu-ray, you should definitely watch it with the commentary on. If not done so, done by the actors and character, it's brilliant. Uh, and then I'll respond to your other question that you wanted me to off the air, Pete. Uh, and that's the email we got this week. So, as always, 
Email us at 80sVisited at gmail.com. On Facebook, 80sVisited Podcast. On Instagram, 80s underscore revisited. Check out our good friend John in Lafayette with his Cajun toy review. He's pumping them out. And, of course, always check in to see what Ben's doing. Ben, the Tasmanian Devil Wyatt, uh, TCW. I know they got another pay-per-view coming up, I believe, where apparently unmasked Doomslayer mm-hmm. will be doing some wrestling. And as always, we'd appreciate if you leave a review just to let us know how we're doing. And again, if you don't like it, if we're too, as we've been claimed, uh, called woke or progressive, that's fine. You don't have to listen. But if you do leave a review, whether it's good or bad, all we ask is you just, you know, let us know why. Explain, you know, show your work, as they would say when I was in school, in math class, which I, God damn, I hate math class. <laughs> anyway, next week, uh, looking i'm i'm not sure uh, i'm kind of up in the air as to which one i want to do i'll probably put up stay tuned to instagram because uh, i might watch both of them and just do the one which i think might be a little better suited for the month uh but we'll go with it from there so until next week for the mystery movie for pride month stay tuned and until then i remain trey harris yes essentially cowabunga be kind to each other motherfuckers. <laughs>